perhaps I should first apologize for not being Roy Hattersley. Um, there are consolations in that. Um, I was very intrigued that he said his problem was, was it a... Vigorous exercises. I was impressed by that. I've known Roy for 40 years and never seen him enjoying that. Uh, I think it must have been the novelty rather than the extremity of uh, the exercise. Anyway, um, we'll do the best with uh, making up for him. I'd like to talk uh, not so much about all the big events in his government. I've written too much about that. Uh, I'd like to talk about my view as an advisor, working for him, uh, seeing him personally. And when James Callaghan took over in number 10 in March 1976 from Harold Wilson, I was immediately struck by how different they were in personality and style of working. And you appreciate each prime minister is totally different. There is no clear or rigid job district description. They all do it in their own way. And there's nothing written down to tell them how to do it. And at first, Jim seemed very unsure, even stressed. Uh, on the second day, he summoned me and revealed he felt, and I quote, isolated, bewildered, a prisoner in number 10. He missed the comfort of the huge support structure of uh, the Foreign Office, something David Owen uh, enjoyed. Uh, number 10 then had only half a dozen people with automatic access uh, to the Prime Minister. So he was not sure what to do. He was not sure where to work. He started off working at the cabinet table in the cabinet room, and then he moved elsewhere. Um, and he settled, quite rightly, for the study. He was not sure which issues to intervene on, because on a prime, as a prime minister, you're the most powerful and the least powerful. All issues are of your concern, but they're all of someone else's concern, a minister. Uh, you have to choose, and he was not sure which ones. I gave him a list of possible options and he sensibly chose education, which led to the famous Ruskin speech in Oxford, uh, which pointed towards bringing ed British education back a little from the cloudy heights it had uh, lived in uh, under Labour pre previously and a little more in line with the reality of our children's needs. I was there, I remember, what I mainly remember was all these students protest, protesting and shouting about cuts and so on and so forth. And afterwards I mentioned that to Jim and he wasn't upset, he just said, oh yes, but they are the privileged. Um, the private office staff waited during those early days while he privately worked it out. But he soon settled and proved to be a master in operating number 10. 
he told me he'd suddenly realized it was like running an old-fashioned railway signal box. He said, I pull the levers and Whitehall delivers the policy trains to the right stations. And he did that really uh, very well. And it was, but it was soon clear to me how very different he was from working with Harold Wilson, which was a special experience, I can tell you. He, Jim, needed much more time and space for his decisions. I like to take each issue at a time, he said to me. He saw staff, the half dozen of us, less often, usually singly, preferably by prior arrangement. He preferred to receive his papers well in advance so he could prepare properly and mentally. He liked to be orderly and well organized in the office. Unlike Harold, who enjoyed the rush and excitement of crises and to have his group of personal advisors regularly around him for drinks and gossip, Jim didn't particularly like gossip. Harold loved it. To him, it was more important than economic policy. Uh, <laughs> but Jim, he liked to have a chat, and he often talked about a theater he'd been to or the te television series he liked watching. And when in a crisis, he sang hymns to himself. Harold was then more fun, if you like, but to me, Jim was more satisfying to work with. He was never boring, never aloof. But he was satisfying because he was more seriously interested in the policy issues. He took the serious issues seriously. And for an advisor, that's marvelous. He was a great patriot. He wanted to solve the huge problems then facing the United Kingdom and to make life better for the mass of ordinary people. That came over very strongly. He greatly respected British institutions. He had a sense of propriety in politics. For instance, in 1979, when we were running behind Margaret Thatcher, and she was being presented, of course, in the Daily Mail and others as a perfect saint, I wanted to write and began to write a speech attacking her. Jim refused to have it. He says, no, you mustn't personally attack someone who may well be the next British Prime Minister. That's how he then felt. Personally, he could be stern, even at sometimes grumpy Margaret. Um, but if you made a serious policy proposal, he wanted to discuss it, would follow it up, and he was loyal to his staff and backed them when they were in trouble. Jim was, as he himself often pointed out to me, not an intellectual, not in an academic sense anyway. He never went to university, so it was remarkable what he achieved and appropriate what we meet in Oxford to celebrate him. But you know, he had a powerful mind, honed by great experience. And he had a devastating capacity 
for asking the simple central question, which was at the heart of the issue under discussion, the central question to which I painfully did not always have the simple straight answer, I confess. I've seen a distinguished economist turn pale and shaking under his precise, severe, but fair grilling. And he was not, as is often said in my time anyway, anti-intellectual. He valued intellectual contributions and greatly valued the work of the policy unit. But he was impatient with the pretentious arrogance of some intellectuals, of whom we're all aware, with none of his practical wisdom and experience of the world. I felt I observed three layers in Jim's personality. On the surface was the bluff, avuncular, sunny Uncle Jim. Below that was a shrewd and impressive politician. But at root, a decent and honest man with good and solid values. I personally liked those solid values and that he was such a sane and sensible man, as well as a statesman, and the fact he was a good family man, devoted to his wife, Audrey, and his children. Professionally, I respected and admired that he was such an experienced and shrewd politician, such a responsible and statesmanlike prime minister. Working close to him, throughout the time as he was Prime Minister, I concluded, summarising him, he was a truly professional Prime Minister. He managed his cabinet brilliantly, especially during the time of the monetary fund crisis, seeking to carry them as a team. He led the Labour Party skillfully, holding them together through repeated crises. All of them respected him when they disagreed with him. That was the test. As a parliamentarian, tall and physically commanding, he dominated the commons. Notably, his relations with civil servants I watched very closely. And they were excellent and mature. He knew how to get the best out of them. He he called them my wait-a-minute men. That was their role. He understood their role of questioning and advising. None of the recent adolescents of blaming the civil servants for the failures of inexperienced ministers. And nationally, he had this feel for the public who trusted him. And remember, as Ken mentioned, he led Thatcher in the polls virtually to the end. He was 20 points ahead of his party. Personally, I've worked for three prime ministers and observed with academic or citizens' interest nine others. My conclusion is that James Callaghan, although he served as prime minister for only three years and never won a general election, was professionally, as a prime minister, better than many of his predecessors and successors. 
who have certainly been more successful in pursuing celebrity fame, but they were not his equal in terms of solid values and political professionalism. Thank you.